Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Good morning, church. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Luke. I get to serve as one of the ministers here at PCC. Y'all remember these things? Anybody remember these? Little finger traps, right? You get a prize at the county fair, you know, if you like made the little ping pong balls in the cup and you get one of these and it was like totally worth your 12 bucks on that game, right? And where you get it at a, a, you know, a favor at somebody's birthday party. And the whole point of this finger trap is you like put your fingers in there and then when you wanna get your fingers out, what is your natural reaction? What do you do? Try to pull it out, right? But, but the harder you pull, the tighter it gets and the stucker your fingers are. And, 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 and so the, the whole point of the finger trap is if you wanna get free, you actually have to do the opposite of your natural inclination and you gotta push your fingers back together and then and only then will you find freedom. You have to do the opposite of your natural reaction. Kind of reminds me of that episode of Seinfeld. Some of you know the one that I'm talking about, right? Where the crew, they're sitting in their little booth at the restaurant and George Costanza is having an identity crisis because he realizes that Every decision he's ever made in his whole life has been wrong. He hates where he is in life. He's a balding, middle-aged man with no prospects, working a dead-end job, no love life, and he's living with his parents. And Costanza all of a sudden realizes that every decision he's ever made, his gut reaction had been wrong. And that's how he got to this dead-end place in life. And so for the rest of the episode, Costanza does the opposite of what he would normally do. He orders different food at the restaurant, makes different decisions, wears different clothes. And sure enough, by the end of the episode, he's, you know, happy and well-dressed and laughing and dating a beautiful woman and he's got a job with the New York Yankees, right? And, and, And the whole point is sometimes you have to do the opposite of your natural inclination. I wanna riff on that a little bit today as we're in the second week of our series, like Kyle said, called You Are Not Your Own. And today we're talking about money. Dun, 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 right? Some of you are like, oh no, I brought a friend today, not the money sermon. (laughs) It's gonna be okay, hang with me, all right? I wanna lay the foundation though here for how we think about money like a Christian. There's two basic principles for biblical finance. They're not gonna be new or earth shattering to you, but we gotta build a foundation. Principle number one is that it all belongs to God. It all belongs to God. Last week, we walked through Psalm 24, verse one, that says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That means that this morning, you woke up to God's new day, you got out of God's bed, you went into God's bathroom, you hopped in God's shower, you brushed God's teeth, you went and drank God's coffee, ate God's cereal, got in God's car, and came to God's church. And this afternoon, you can go home and you can turn on your TV and you can watch God's team, the St. Louis Cardinals. Can I get an amen? Man, we are a house divided. We'll get there, okay? Um, We'll make you Christians by the end of this thing, all right? Uh, Hey, it all belongs to God. And and to be totally honest and bear my heart with you, like I don't get super pumped about preaching the money sermon, all right? But you know what? I'm not embarrassed to talk to you about it either. Not ashamed to have this conversation because if it really does all belong to God, we don't have to be embarrassed about asking God's people to give God's money to do God's stuff, right? Hypothetically. Um, let's say after the service, we're out there in the lobby together and I wrote you a check for $5 million. Now, I could do that today. I could write you a check for $5 million. It would bounce, but I could write it, okay? Let's say though, that it didn't bounce. Let's say I gave you $5 million. I said, hey, go cash that check. And when you do, like spend some on yourself. 
Treat yourself a little bit. Take that trip you've been saving up for. Go on that vacation. Buy that thing like crystal essential oils diffuser. Do, do your thing, you know, like get the premium version of Spotify. No more ads. Five million dollars, right? Like you don't have to order off the dollar menu at McDonald's anymore. Get yourself the Big Mac. Go all out, okay? Now, and I said, treat yourself. And then go spend the whole rest of that on kingdom stuff, like spend it lavishly to do something amazing for God and for other people. If I told you how to use that $5 million like that, would you be mad at me? No, no right? No, of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't be like, how dare you, sir? Because it wasn't your money to begin with, right? It was mine. That's why we can have this conversation today. We gotta lay the groundwork of understanding that it all belongs to God. But there's a second principle that actually runs even deeper than that. Principle number one is that it all belongs to God. Principle number two, though, is that actually you belong to God. Not just all the stuff, but, but you belong to God. Last week, we talked about how the story that the world is going to tell you is that you are your own and you belong to yourself. And that sounds really liberating, but it's actually crushing. This story that you are your own and you belong to yourself, it sounds like it leads to freedom, but actually it leads to slavery. But there is a freedom and a beauty, we've said, in the story of the gospel, the good news that Jesus is king. It leads to a deeper and better story that does give us comfort and beauty and life and wholeness and peace. Last week, we told the story of how way back in 1563, 500 years ago in Germany at Heidelberg University, these theologians got together and they said, how are we gonna teach these Jesus followers the basics of the faith? And so they wrote this series of questions and answers called the Heidelberg Catechism. And the thing they started with, question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism says this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? that I am not my own, but belong with both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Your only comfort in life and death is that not you belong to yourself, you are your own, 180 degrees from that. Actually, you're not your own. You belong to Jesus, and he's faithful. That's good news, right? You're not your own. You don't belong to yourself. And actually, they just lifted this right off the pages of Scripture. Last week, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We saw where Paul says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You belong to God in two ways. You belong to God through creation, we said, because he made you. And you belong to God through redemption because he paid for you. He bought you. He purchased you. He redeemed you with the blood of his son, Jesus. You were bought at a price. You belong to God. So last week we said, therefore, as Paul says, honor God with your body. Today we're going to say, so honor God with your money. So in terms of money, this reality that all of it belongs to God and all of us belongs to God, that means you and I, we don't actually have anything, right? If none of this belongs to us, we don't even belong to ourselves. We don't have or own anything. We are stewards. We're managers of the gifts and the personality and the time and the relationships and the experiences that God has loaned and entrusted to us for this season that we're here on earth. We don't have anything except for one thing. The beauty of scripture says that actually when we belong to God, God also belongs to us. The only thing you have is Jesus. All throughout scripture, we see the psalmist crying out saying, my God, my God. When Jesus teaches his people to pray, he says, you can call him our father. You belong to God and he belongs to you. At the end of the day, he's all we've got. Now, this is finger trap kind of stuff. This is George Costanza kind of stuff, right? Because my natural inclination is not that. 
My natural inclination is to look around at my stuff and think it's my stuff, okay? So the story the world is gonna tell you, we could call it today the richness of having. The world is gonna say that you can measure your wealth, your richness, you can measure the quality of your life by asking the question, what do you have? Let's explore this idea, the richness of having together for a little bit. We're gonna take a, a, a little bit of a circular route, so hang with me, okay? We're gonna come back here. Um, there's a guy um, several decades ago, back in the early 1900s, named Sir John Glubb. He's a British guy, lived a very long time ago, but he wrote a groundbreaking book called The Fate of Empires. And Sir John Glubb looked throughout all of world history and he studied all the major empires throughout history and found that each of those empires go through seven common phases. And certainly there's nuances from empire to empire, but they all kind of go through these seven core phases. And Sir John Glubb said that those seven phases are a, number one, the age of pioneers. Number two is the age of conquests. Number three is the age of commerce. Number four is the age of affluence. Number five is the age of intellect. Number six is the age of decadence. And number seven is the age of decline and collapse. Pretty much all empires throughout history have gone through those seven phases. And on average, even though they're different from story to story, on average, the average empire throughout world history has lasted around roughly 250 years to walk through all seven of these phases. So let's look through this lens at the empire we live in. Let's look at the United States of America. Okay, for starters, we could start with the age of pioneers. We could talk about how when Christopher Columbus first got here, discovered the new world all the way kind of up till the time when Lewis and Clark kind of pushed all the way west and they kind of explored the whole continent by this point. That's the age of pioneers. Of course, that overlaps a little bit with the founding fathers who kind of secured our independence from England, secured our national footprint. We could call that the age of conquest and they kind of get the borders of the country drawn a little bit and all of a sudden these cities start to pop up all over the country and we've got these these trade routes developing on the rivers and the railroads and the Pony Express and all that stuff. We could call that the age of commerce. All of a sudden, there's an economy being born. And then about 150 years ago, we went through the Industrial Revolution, right? We got some technology, got steam power. We got all these factories. All of a sudden, now there's more jobs. People start to move to the cities. All of a sudden, for the first time in history, we have a middle class. That means there's more wealth available to more people than ever. We begin to become a wealthy country. Then we move about 100 years ago to the the age of intellect. Think of the people who lived a hundred years ago, like your great grandparents. A lot of those people, when they were born, people were still driving around in horses and buggies. And by the time they died, we had a man on the moon. It's incredible what happened in just one lifespan. We could call that the age of intellect. The technological revolution begins, and of course that carries on now. And in the last 50 years or so, sociologists would tell you, we've been living in the age of decadence. That yes, technology is increasing, all those kinds of things, but really, for about the last 50 years, we've been able to kind of just like sit on our pile of wealth and enjoy the spoils of everything and enjoy all the unprecedented technologies and opportunity that we have that nobody else has ever even dreamed about in history. We're living, sociologists would say, in the age of decadence. Now, remember, Sir John Glubb is writing all this by studying historical empires. He wrote all of this before we ever entered into the age of decadence, okay? But... If that's the age we're living in right now, listen to how Sir John Glubb describes the age of decadence that the other empires of world history have been through. He says the age of decadence is marked by defensiveness, frivolity, the weakening of religion, materialism, and pessimism. Does that sound familiar to anybody? 
right? Any defensiveness we see anywhere? No, surely not, right? Okay, no, uh, frivolity, people chasing after trivial things, the weakening of religion, materialism, people chasing after stuff, pessimism. And don't forget that in three years on July 4th, 2026, America will be 250 years old. Now, I'm not a doomsday prophet, all right? <laughs> don't leave, you're okay. Um, and of course, like, of course we're praying for renewal and we're gonna pray for the leaders of our country just like Paul tells us to in scripture. And I believe that God can bring renewal to churches and to communities and to entire countries. He's done it before, he can do it again. And yet, we also center ourselves on the reality that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, an eternal kingdom that will never be shaken and will last from age to age and generation to generation even as earthly empires come and go, okay? All that to say this, the richness of having that your life is measured by the amount of stuff that you have, it's a lie from the age of decadence. We've been here before, we'll be there again. The richness of having is just a myth. Don't buy it. It doesn't lead anywhere good. Um, one of the primary figures in American history of the age of decadence would be William Randolph Hearst. Perhaps you've heard of him. He was this big, mega wealthy newspaper mogul from the last century. And William Randolph Hearst, he was kind of a stuffaholic. You can actually go still see his house today. It's called the Hearst Castle. 72,000 square foot house, right? On 265,000 acres, 50 miles of California shoreline. And his whole property was stuffed to the gills with stuff, with things that he thought would make him rich. And then you know what happened? He died. That's it. It reminds me of a story that Jesus tells about the richness of having. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus says this. He says, then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Don't buy the myth of the age of decadence. It's a lie. Richness of having is not where it's at. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, self, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy the age of decadence. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. Kind of heavy story, isn't it? The point is, the richness of having ain't it. Don't buy the lie of the age of decadence. Did you catch how self-focused this guy was? Over the course of two verses, that dude in Jesus' story talks about himself nine times. He says, my crops, my grain, my barns. He forgot principle number one, that it all belongs to God. He forgot principle number two, that he belongs to God. And he found out when he died where did the grain come from? Where did he come from? It all belongs to God, which is why not only is the richness of having like wrong, sinful, and idolatrous, it's also just dumb, God says. You fool. The man is a fool not because he wants more. The man is a fool because he thinks that more crops and more barns are the more that he needs. Listen, you and I, 
we've run enough laps in this life now, haven't we? I probably don't need to prove this to you, that we know more stuff doesn't scratch the itch on your soul, does it? I think it's interesting to read these studies about wealth, and there's been several of them done, and they all basically say the same thing, where they'll interview people of a certain income bracket, and they'll say, how much money would you need to be rich? And pretty much all the studies say the same thing, that the people making $30,000, they say, I'm not rich, but if I was making $50,000 a year. And the people making $75,000 said, well, yeah, we're we're not rich, we're barely scraping by. But the people with $100,000 a year, now that's rich. And listen, I know that there's a fair amount of you in here in the room this morning who are making $100,000 a year. And you're hearing me as I say this and you're thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't understand like mortgage and school payments and braces for my kids and college ones and two trips to Florida and the baseball tournament. And like, listen, but the $200,000 people a year, now that's rich, right? Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie of the richness of having. The lie is that it's always a moving target. We never really arrive, do we? There's a theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf. It's very hard to say. I practiced it a lot before the sermon today. And uh, he talks about how there's two kinds of richness. He says, number one, there's the richness of having, like we've talked about. The richness of having is about external things, the house you have, the car you have, the financial security you have. But then he says, there's the richness of being. And the richness of being is, is internal. And, and Miroslav Volf says that most people pursue the richness of having because they think that the richness of having is the way to get richness of being. That thing that we all want, that internal state of being happy and being at peace and being free from worry. Of course, we've run enough laps, haven't we now, to know that richness of having will never lead to richness of being, that barns full of grain cannot fill up the bottomless hole in your soul. We could all tell stories about this, right? Things we bought that didn't satisfy. I think of a few examples. I think of uh, Troy Aikman, right? Hall of Fame quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys way back in the dark ages when they were actually good. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? And, and Troy Aikman talks about how after they won their first Super Bowl, he didn't go out with the rest of the team to celebrate. Instead, he just went back by himself to his hotel room and he ordered a beer from room service and he sat alone on a hotel bed. And Troy Aikman said this. He said, I kept thinking back to when I was a teenager how I thought life's problems would be solved when I turned 16 and got a car, then I would be happy. But I wasn't. And now here I was at the top of professional football, Super Bowl champion, and I found myself thinking, now what? Now what? Richness of having couldn't give him richness of being. If you read your history books, you remember the great Greek warrior Alexander the Great who conquered the entire known world. And so the story goes that when he found out there were no more nations left to conquer, he fell down on his knees and he wept. There's a Christian author by the name of Mark Buchanan who tells the story of the very first time that he held the very first book he'd ever written and published. This thing was the culmination of 20 years of dreaming, eight years of writing, praying, knocking on publishers' doors. And when he finally held that first book in his hands, he said, it wasn't enough. It didn't answer all my longings or quell my insecurities. It didn't fulfill me. The father of modern sociology is a guy by the name of Emile Durkheim, and he did some studies on what societal factors influence the, the suicide rate of a given country. And he was theorizing that perhaps as poverty increased, suicide would also increase. But he actually found that's not actually true, but that suicide rates in a country increase when the economy is growing quickly. 
Richness of having does not lead to richness of being. Now let's press pause right here. We're living in the age of decadence. Let's just admit it. Living in the age of decadence is pretty good, isn't it? It's pretty nice. Like we can go anywhere we want in the world in 24 hours. We can get any little piece of information that we want at the touch of a button. We're eradicating poverty. We're bringing justice into places we've never had justice. We're raising people from the dregs of society. People have unprecedented levels of access to health care. We're getting rid of all kinds of diseases. Living in the age of decadence is pretty amazing. And yet, even as our richness of having is increasing as a society, our richness of being is trending the opposite direction. We live in a time, we said last week, of a mental health crisis, when for the first time in a very long time, the life expectancy in America is going down right now because of deaths of despair, drug overdoses, and suicide. Richness of having is not the answer. Jesus himself said it before he told that story. He said, watch out. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. So what does life consist of, right? Like it it begs the question, if richness of having isn't it, then how do we get richness of being? Uh, Jesus describes the kind of people in his kingdom who get to experience richness of being. In his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he kicks it off by walking through these things called the Beatitudes, where he describes the kind of people who experience being blessed and being happy. It's in Matthew chapter five. Let's just contrast what the world says and what Jesus says about richness of being. Because the world says, blessed are the hard chargers for they will get ahead in the world. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The world says, blessed are the tough for they will never let life drag them down. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The world says, blessed are those who complain, for they will end up getting their way. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The world says, blessed are those who live their truth, for they will always be right. But Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. The world says, blessed are the self-righteous, for they will expose the failures of others. But Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The world says, blessed are the smart people, for they will end up on top. But Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The world says, blessed are the troublemakers, for they'll be noticed. But Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The world says, blessed are those who stick with the crowd, for they will be on the right side of history. But Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus is painting this picture here of richness of being, a soul that is abiding in peace, a kind of eternal comfort and confidence and security, an unshakable hope that lasts strong even when life does its worst to you. I want that, don't you? Man. So how do we get it, right? Remember our guy we talked about, William Randolph Hearst, the 20th century rich guy? 
Well, he was an avid art collector, and as he was pursuing the richness of having, he one day saw a photo of these two just stunning works of art that he decided he wanted to add to his collection. And so he got one of his dudes, and he said, hey, go wherever you need to go, spend whatever you need to spend, get me those two pieces of art. And so it took months and months, but after months of searching, his agent finally came back to him and said, Mr. Mr. Hurst, we're finally able to locate those two pieces of art, and the best news is they're not gonna cost you a dime. You already own them. They were in a box in his warehouse collecting dust with a bunch of the rest of the other stuff. Can I preach that for a second? (laughs) We have this thing that we want, right? Richness of being, and we've looked everywhere to try to find it, and everything we've looked for hasn't satisfied. And if richness of having is not the answer, how do we get the richness of being? The good news is what you need, you already have. Your only comfort in life and in death is that you belong to Jesus. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. And that is where richness of being is found. You already have it. Richness of having asks the question, what do you have? But richness of being asks the question, who has you? It all belongs to God and you belong to God. And richness of being is found right there. That's the key. Now, when we think about richness of being, um, the First example I think of is the Apostle Paul. In the New Testament, one of the early followers of Jesus wrote a lot of our um, scripture here. And the Apostle Paul, he had experienced both kinds of richness. On the one hand, he had the richness of having. He had a powerful job. He was uh, well-respected. He was educated in the most prestigious schools. He had the rare thing where both the Roman Empire liked him and the Jewish religious elites liked him. He had it all. Not only that, Paul went on to become the most influential theologian, missionary, and author in the history of the church. Not a bad resume, right? And yet, Paul says that all of that richness of having is worthless compared to the richness of being that comes from Jesus having me. He says this in Philippians chapter three. He says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I only have one thing, he says, I have him and it's all I need for whose sake I've lost all things. Get rid of all the rest of it. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. He says, you can take it all away because I have him and he has me. That is all the richness of being that I need, that I belong to him. And that's really good news that Paul got there because they pretty much did take everything away from Paul. Man, like if you, if you read through the book of Acts and you see Paul's story, he's a jailbird, he's a repeat offender, he's constantly in and out of prison, getting beaten up, run out of cities, drugged before people, shipwrecked, on trial. They take everything away from Paul and yet Paul has the audacity to say this. In the next chapter, Philippians chapter four, Paul writes this, from prison, He says, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've tried the richness of having thing, he says, and I've learned the secret of being content. Can you say that? I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. Listen, like it is what? It is 1126. I'm hungry. I'm almost not the secret of being content thing right now, okay? But he's saying whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. As long as I have Jesus and he has me, I'm good, Paul says. I can be content in any and every situation. Can you say that? Man, I want to be able to say that, don't you? 
So as we land the plane here today, let's get practical here for a minute. How do we exchange the richness of having for richness of being? Well, part of how we train our souls to find our richness of being and belonging to Jesus is through what's called spiritual disciplines. And that's just a fancy church word that means these exercises that we do to help strengthen our relationship with God. Now, there are two different types of spiritual disciplines because there are two different types of sins. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. A sin of omission is not doing something that you should have done. A sin of commission is doing something that you should not have done. So corresponding to those two types of sin to kind of help weed them out of our hearts, there are two types of spiritual disciplines. There are disciplines of engagement and disciplines of abstinence. A discipline of engagement is saying yes to something. A discipline of abstinence is saying no to something. I wanna give you one of each as we close here, okay? The first one is this. Let's practice the discipline of simplicity. Practice the discipline of simplicity. That's a discipline of abstinence because simplicity is about saying no to the temporary. Say no to the temporary, okay? Um, If I looked at your life right now, would I say that you are living a simple life? Because remember, we're living in the age of decadence, right? Most people are not living simple lives. Would I say that you are living a simple life? That means, for starters, that you're probably not gonna have some things other people will have. You're not gonna be doing some things that other people do. You're living a simple life. Let's do a mental exercise here with me. In your mind right now, uh, get a stack of post-it notes, okay? You got a stack of post-it notes in your mind? Now in your mind, grab a Sharpie, and on those post-it notes, on every single one, I want you to write the word temporary, okay? Now you have a stack of mental post-it notes with the word temporary on them. Let's go to your house together, and I want you to put one of those post-it notes on everything in your life that is temporary, okay? So we're walking into your house. Put a post-it note on your front door. Put a post-it note on the car in your garage. Put a post-it note on your refrigerator. Put a post-it note on the bank statement sitting on your counter. Put a post-it note on your cell phone. Put one on your wallet. Put a post-it note on your, on your bed, on the clothes in your closet. Put a post-it note on all that stuff. It's all temporary. The guy in Jesus' story, he should have put those post-it notes on his barn, on his crops, on his house, but he didn't. Don't forget, all that's temporary. Now, Get another stack of post-it notes in your mind. You can make it a different color if you want to, okay? And get your other mental Sharpie out and write the word eternal on that stack. Okay, now let's go back to your house together and walk back through your house with me. Let's put one of those post-it notes on everything in your life that's eternal. So you can put one on your Bible. The word of the Lord stands forever, right? Uh, You can put one on your kids, put one on your spouse, put one on your grandkids, put one on your neighbor, put one on the cashier at Kroger, Put one on that person that you dislike most in the world because they are eternal too. Don't forget to put one on your own heart. Now, the discipline of simplicity is about saying no to the things that have the temporary post-it note on them so that you can say yes to the things that have the eternal post-it note on them. So here's my challenge for you. You gotta keep reminding your heart that your hope is not in bigger barns and more crops. How can you say no to temporary things? When I think of that, uh, the example I think of is my grandparents. My grandpa, we call him Papa Gene, and he has experienced the richness of having. He was a corporate executive. He had all of it, very well off, all that stuff. But if you looked at the way he lived his life, you couldn't tell because he does not care at all. He's sold out on the richness of being. And one of Papa Gene's mottos is live simply so that others can simply live. Live simply so that others can simply live. And and a a few years ago when I was a kid, they started this Christmas tradition in our family where they would buy a simple little gift for every person in our family just as a token of love. But then they'd also just write everybody a letter telling all the things God had done for them this year and also telling how they used the money that they could have spent 
on a more lavish present instead to go drill a well in Africa or buy a bunch of goats for a family in South America. Live simply so that others can simply live. And to be honest, as a kid, I thought it was a ripoff. <laughs> Got robbed of my Christmas presents, right? I'm a human too, okay? Um, eight-year-old Luke was not super spiritual, but <laughs> I'm thankful they set an example of simplicity. Say no to the temporary. Now here's your discipline of engagement. It's generosity. Let's say yes to the eternal. Say yes to the eternal. When Jesus um, closes out that story, he says this in Luke chapter 12. He says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. I love that phrase, don't you? Rich toward God. It's tax season right now. If I looked at your tax return and I saw those numbers, would I think, huh, they are rich toward God. That's what Jesus wants us to be. Now listen, if you're brand new here this morning and you walked in and it's first Sunday, it's like, oh man, this is awkward, you know? And it's like, how much is he gonna tell me to give? Like, people ask questions. How much am I supposed to give? Do I tithe on the net? Do I tithe on the gross? I'm not necessarily interested in answering those questions today. I just wanna challenge you today to be rich toward God because God and Uncle Sam are very different. Uncle Sam wants your money too. And Uncle Sam knows exactly how much of your money he wants and when he wants it. And in fact, he's, he's gonna take it out of your paycheck every time you get paid. So he knows that he's gonna get it when he wants it. And he's hired all those delightful people at the IRS to make sure that you give him the money that he wants when he wants it in the exact right amount. Because Uncle Sam doesn't trust you. But God is different. God still has high expectations. He wants your first. He wants your best. He wants you to be rich toward him. But the difference is that God will never ask you to do anything for him that he has not done first for you so much more. And the reason we are rich toward God is that God has been rich toward us. We love because he first loved us. You remember John 3, 16, don't you? For God so loved the world that he gave, he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Paul talks about in Ephesians how we've experienced the richness of God's kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are challenged to say yes to generosity because God has said yes to us. He said yes to our eternal when he sent us Jesus. He's been rich toward us. He bought us and now we belong to him and he bought us at a really high price. Take out your communion that you got when you walked in here. This is the moment that we have every week together where we are reminded of the richness of being that God has given us, that we get to be secure in relationship with him, that we get hope and peace and life and joy and love because we belong to Jesus. But it wasn't free. That God paid for us with the body and the blood of his son on the cross. And so what we're gonna do is I'm gonna give you a few moments to receive this little piece of bread on your own to just tell God, thank you. For the body of his son nailed to that cross, laid in the tomb, raised from the dead three days later so that you could belong to God. And then I'll pray and then we'll receive this little bit of juice together that reminds us of the blood of Jesus that washes us clean. Let's take a moment and receive this together. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.